0: This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm Josh Maldon, your host, and I'm here today with Mark Douglas, who is a professor of Christian ethics at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, and is a CTI member. And Mark, in a moment, I want to have you speak more about your own uh, biography and how that led to the writing of this book, uh, and also just welcome you to the podcast.
1: Well, uh, it's great to be with you, Josh, and um, with all of your listeners. we're all, or I at least, am still walking my way into what it means to be in a podcast. So uh, excuse any blunders along the way, but I'm excited to have this chance to have an opportunity to have this conversation with you.
0: Absolutely. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe speak a bit about, uh, so the book we're going to talk about today is the second in the trilogy that you're working on. Uh, and this book is called Modernity, the Environment and the Christian Just War. Tradition, and it's a follow-up to the first book of the trilogy, which was Christian Pacifism for an Environmental Age. And both all, well, all three of these are going to be published by Cambridge University Press. And uh, this was one I uh, you were already working on when you came to CTI last year for our inquiry on uh, the env- religion and the environment. Uh, And then you were also working on the third one. So maybe speak to how this whole, you know, years-long trilogy fits into the work you've been doing in your own biography.
1: Sure, I'll be glad to. So um, a little bit of my backstory is that I grew up on a small farm in Colorado, um, and just to grow up in Colorado and especially outdoors um, as I was, is to grow up with an interest in the environment. I was a, actually a biology major in uh, college uh, with primarily a focus on um, medicine and going to medical school but um, I took several courses on um, on on matters related to ecology when I um, went to seminary into grad school, I let a lot of the f- my interest in environmental issues sit avocationally, but not really be a, an area of scholarly interest. And when I got to Columbia Seminary in 1999, I started to map out what I needed to be working on. And what I discovered is that um, big plans about what you get need to be working on change when the world changes around you. So I'd only been here a little while when 9-11 happened. And 9-11, um, coming that early in my career meant for me some need to focus on matters about large-scale violence and Christian responses to um, things like war and terrorism. I wrote a couple of other books for various audiences that I thought needed to hear things um, to the church and to kind of some general public. And I was scratching around for uh, the topic for the next big book in about 2011 when I happened to hear an interview with a retired Uh, I believe, Rear Admiral of uh, the U.S. Navy, who was expressing concern about the impact of climate change on the Navy's work and its capacity to do that that work. And I realized at that point that I had not really heard anything linking what had been a long avocational interest, environmental concerns, with what had become a scholarly interest, violence. So I thought, well, I, I feel like there's something there And I need to figure out what it is and whether it's worth my attention. I fortunately was headed into a sabbatical at that point. So I began my sabbatical researching and discovered entire realms of um, studies and fields of work that I didn't know anything about, environmental security studies. I didn't even know the field existed, even though it was getting pretty well formed by that time. What I discovered along the way is that I could not find conversation partners that I needed because the conversation I needed to have or I felt like I could participate in with some degree of wisdom was a conversation that brought together three um, kind of legs to a stool of conversation that's a really awkward metaphor but you get what I mean Um, the first is uh, environmental ethics and engagement with the non-human natural world the second is matters of war and peace and conflict And the third is uh, religious ethics. Uh, And I could find people who could write on, who wrote on any two of those. But I could, at that point in 2011, find nobody who wrote on all three. So I started to map out a book that could do that, recognizing I was no longer going to be entering into a pre existing conversation so much as doing cartography, kind of trying to map out a world that I couldn't find existed yet. And the deeper I dove into that work, the more work I realized I needed to do. So um, out of that work came um, a realization that I needed, or for myself at least, I needed to build the resources that I wanted to have in place to write the book on facing war in the 21st century as it's been shaped by um, environmental calamity of various sorts. The first book then, Pacifism for an Environmental Age, re-narrates the history of Christian pacifism, um, arguing that the standard narrative that's provided at least in um, Western theological institutions is a faulty narrative, um, and that there are richer narratives available, and that that richer narrative really includes attention to the interactions of the tradition with, uh, with the created order. The second book, the one that we're going to be focusing on um, here, Modernity, the Environment and the, just, and the Christian Just War Tradition, picks up uh, the question of, uh, of just war thought, much as the first book picked up the question of pacifism, and makes the argument that as the uh, Christian Just War Tradition transitioned from its late medieval to its early modern form, not only did it really play a fundamental role in shaping modernity, But it also shaped modernity's blindnesses to the interrelationship between the natural and the political and that those blindnesses are part of the complexity and the problem that we're facing now as we try to figure out how to deal with um, war in a warming world so now both those books have come out and i'm finally into the third book the one i started i wanted to write a decade ago um, which tentatively is called uh, war in a warming world religion resources and refugees
0: this this question should not be permitted, but how far along are you on that book?
1: So uh, have a a good introductory chapter that lays out uh, the plan for the whole book, which undoubtedly will have to be rewritten once I've written the rest of the book and I discover all the things that I needed to write about that I didn't know I needed to write about when I wrote the introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a good intro I have a good first chapter, substantial first chapter, um and I'm into the second chapter. and then um, I've got some stuff that I've written before that I will probably call and bring into at least um, the, the fifth chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a couple of chapters in. Um, I go on to sabbatical at the end of the spring semester, and I'm on sabbatical through the end of January. Um, my hope is to get three more chapters, which will be um, at the end of sabbatical, um, four of the, sub- the six chapters of Substance done by the end of January. And um, hopefully that puts me within striking range of being able to finish the last two and, and get it off to Cambridge Press.
0: How did you decide that this needed to be a trilogy instead of sort of a really big book? And, and maybe more important, how did you, it was such so much material to work with. How did you not sort of get lost in the weeds in a way in which the, the book would never, the books would never even get completed? I mean, how did you do all that research even day to day? I'm kind of curious. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, So two things to say. The first is I'm not sure I ever actually made the decision for the trilogy. The trilogy just emerged organically as I um, dug into the work and thought, well, I need to talk about this. Well, I need to talk about that, but I can't talk about that while I'm talking about this. Well, I want to get to this point, but in order to get to this point, I've got to do these three things first. So the development of the trilogy was, was somewhat organic, although by the time I was Pretty far into the first one, I was pretty confident it was going to be a trilogy. Um, it shifted from being one book initially to being two. One was kind of background. First was background, which would be pacifism and just war, and the second one was then contemporary issues. Um, and as I got deeper into the f- the first book, I realized like this is a book in itself, which gets to that second question: Why three books instead of one? Um, that I think probably is just uh, economics. More than it is my own discipline um I couldn't find publishers who were willing to you know pick up the potential of a you know a seven hundred eight hundred nine hundred page book um and so I didn't mind splitting it up; it actually created a little bit of space, and you get to feel like you've accomplished something along the way by producing a couple of books as as you go um Cambridge has been great. Um, I would note that um, Cambridge has not yet definitively said that they'll publish the third. They want to see the manuscript, which is what they did for the first two. I'm happy with that. I, I trust my ability as a scholar and writer, and they've been great to work with. Um, and what Cambridge offered when I started to shop around the trilogy um, is the idea that when, uh, when and if they release the third book, they'll re-release the first two so people can get them as a set.
0: Great. One of the things that interests me about this book is the way, oh, this whole project is the way in which it's it's kind of a future-oriented perspective, sort of prognosticating kind of project in the sense that um, with some exceptions, we don't see wide-scale wars at the moment related to climate change. I mean, somebody might debate that, but you know, it's not an obvious thing that we're seeing huge numbers of wars over water or resources or something like that. But you're talking about how all the reasons why we can foresee that this will happen uh, in the future. So maybe just wanted to speak to that, like what led you to write a book that's more kind of looking toward the future of what might be a problem, as opposed to saying, okay, here are the problems we have now, let's deal with those.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It actually um, drops right into the center of what was for a long time in environmental security studies a big debate which was, is there any evidence of conflict that is create has been created by uh, climatic events or environmental catastrophes? And um, really, for the first several decades in environmental security studies, nobody could actually point to a specific instance or getting any kind of definitive, causative relationship between um, climatic and environmental events and, and war. Um, in the... Um, The late aughts, uh, a number of scholars led by uh, a man named Simon Say, I believe, um, published the first kind of good bit of data supporting a causative role for climatic events leading to conflict. They did so by studying the way um, ENSO, the the El Nino-Southern Oscillation, um, had an impact on violence in Central America. You'll um, remember that um, El Nino is um, repetitive, but it isn't uh, regular, right? The, the gaps between when the last El Nino system happens and the next one can vary by several years, which becomes a great variable to study because it, it helps see if conflict goes up and down at the point when El Nino is going up and down. That's about the only variable left to account for. Um, the rise in conflict, and what these folks discovered was that there was, in fact a rise in violence driven by the this this El nino um, southern oscillation systems so um the idea that that climate can be can be a determiner in um, conflict is is really a, just a decade old The next two things I want to say though um, are first of all that um as with any large-scale conflict, it is almost never the case that there is a single cause, that instead there is a complex of causes interacting with each other, any one of which by changing could reshape either the potential for or the shape of or the type of conflict that we face. That's just always been the case. So one of the things that um I would argue is it's not it wouldn't be fair to say the standard for assessing whether or not a climatic event or um, an environmental catastrophe led to conflict is that there has to be it is is the cause, because we're not asking that of any other causes that we associate with war. So the first thing to say is that um, this is something; um, these are features that are likely to um, make conflict more likely, that are likely to exacerbate conflicts that are already going on for other reasons. Um, or that are likely to make conflict harder to work our way back out of. The second thing to say, though, is that um, one of the reasons it's difficult for us to see the relationship between climate and conflict, or between climatic events and conflict, between environmental degradation and conflict, is that um, the blinders of modernity make it difficult for us to see those connections. That part of what I want to do in the first two books is display the interactions between the political and the natural in ways that have just been hidden under assumptions about what the political looks like, especially in modernity when the the way of understanding large-scale conflict, the way of understanding war is fundamentally one of, uh, poli- poli- of politics, right? Um, you know, war is politics by other means, says von Clausewitz, right? that's the the starting point but when you start with the idea that the natural and the political can be separated and then you lump all of warm all war matters into the political you have cut off yourself you cut yourself off from actually seeing or um, beginning to make sense of the interactions between the political and the natural and part of the first two books is to point out these have always intersected right so the conflicts of um the period of of colonization and conquest were we're shaped by the need by Europe for European countries to gain resources at a point when they were um, low on resources on, on the European continent. And that's part of what drove the projects of colonization and conquest. Um, they needed resources they no longer had. And then as they got those resources, they exacerbated conflicts by the, the movement of those resources back and forth. Um, including the spread of things like diseases and um, invasive species.
0: I want to ask you a bit about the Christian just war tradition for a very broad audience. Uh, many people might not know the whole history of this, and obviously there's no time to go into all of it. Uh, and actually, maybe before I even get to that question, a broader question. You know, So you've written a couple of books now. One is on Christian pacifism, one on the Christian just war tradition. For some people, it might be ironic that both of these, uh, both of these exist in the same religious tradition. That is, there's a tradition of pacifism grounded in Christian ideas, and there's a tradition of just war also grounded in, uh, Christian ideas. Maybe one way to get into the question, are there one, do you have more sympathy for one of those traditions or the other, or are you, uh, do you want to just maintain both somehow?
1: Um, Well, here it probably um, helps me that um, James Childress was my dissertation advisor. Childress wrote an article um, arguing that um, although they're often treated as um, diametrically opposed to each other, that in fact, um, Christian pacifism and and Christian just war thinking depend on each other. That that Christian just war thinking gives Christian pacifists the criteria by which to assess the um, the quality of individual wars and to judge it. And Christian pacifism gives to just war, thinking um, the recognition that the starting point for Christian engagement is is, um, is peace, right? That um, we start with the presumption that uh, God doesn't wish war, God wishes welfare. And so um, I've always been more willing to entertain the overlap between the two than have some. Um, that overlap became more pronounced um, after uh, during the the first Iraq war when Christian just warriors and Christian pacifists gathered together and developed what they were calling a third way, which is uh, just peacemaking that didn't um, maintain a commitment to the ideals of pacifism, nor did it uh, commit itself to the anthropologies of um, Christian just war thought, but instead tried to, to, to bring the best of both together to solve particular problems. For myself, where do I sit? Um, I am too reformed theologically to uh, believe that um, the coercive use of force or the threat of the coercive use of force is something that needs to be ruled out of bounds um, in all contexts, because the Failure to do so can result in more horrific things than the the doing so.
0: The other question I wanted to raise about this is, and one of the things you highlight in the book so well, is the way in which this whole tradition of Christian just war itself develops into a secular context and is the sort of undergirding for our whole system of international law, speaking of, for example, this thinker Hugo Grotius from the early modern period. Uh, maybe speak to that history, because many people, again, might not know that the whole way we think about international law, uh, restrictions on warfare, actually comes out of this religious background.
1: Yeah. Um, so let me kind of um, walk my way into that a little bit with a little bit of kind of more general claims about, claims I make about just war thinking. The first is that um, one of my arguments is any, time, any place where you can find some type of enduring society, um, you're going to find some version of just war thinking because what just war thinking is blends together a willingness to maintain security with a commitment to maintaining some type of moral sensibility. As long as those two p- pieces are in place, you're going to find some type of just war thinking. What the Christian just war tradition did is added theological depth to that, whether it's, you know, um, St. Augustine making arguments th- about the way that love of neighbor means we have an obligation to um get involved if we see neighbors who are being harmed um or the way thomas aquinas talks about kind of um a particular ordering of the world in which um virtues virtuous patterns of behavior um, necessarily catch us up in in, um, unusual settings so um the Christian just war tradition really has been um, around for a while and just war traditions have been around for a while. What I do in the book um, in part just builds on the work of James Turner Johnson, who was the first I know of to make the argument that um, as the Christian just war tradition developed and moved into modernity, it spun off the rise of international law, um, which is kind of where we get Grotius. I mean, Grotius is two great texts or great great text is the first great text on international law. And it's a book about when to go into war, and how to go to war, and why to go to war. Um, So it spun off that, um, International Law, which then spins off things like um, ideas about human rights. Um, It also um, spins out um, other patterns of engagement, um, including um, laws uh, and rules related to military codes. right? The transition from from the late medieval form of engagements to the modern form of engagements is also a transition from um, the need for the military to have specific training on weapons that are not easily used to the development of mass armies where um, we fight, you know, uh, rather than knights fighting each other who are trained in hand to hand, um, we now have mass armies using cannon. Um, It changes the shape of war. So um, if you're going to have a chain shape of war and you're going to have people who um, are not trained by in a code that they are raised in to be knights, you're going to have to figure out what kind of code to put in place. So the Libra codes, for instance, say, this is how armies are have to behave. Um, and so it also spins out kind of secular versions of, of army manuals um, as a result. So there's a lot of kind of ways that it spins out, but that's a couple international. Um, law and the development of military codes.
0: There's so many other things we could talk about. It's such a rich book, Uh, but maybe as a final question, I was just curious, how does this material um, come up in your own teaching at Columbia Seminary? And in what way do you incorporate this? I mean, this is very historical. This is very in-depth historical and ethical research. So just wanted to ask that.
1: Uh, So, so that um, question troubles my sleep in that um, I haven't figured out how to teach on this stuff. And the reason I haven't figured out how to teach on this stuff has a lot to do with where I'm teaching, right? I'm teaching at a um, a standalone theological seminary, which, although it's one of the larger seminaries within the Presbyterian Church USA, still isn't very big and still draws mostly from um, students who want to go into, vast majority of students want to go into some type of ordered ministry. What do I need to teach them? I'm not sure that I need to prioritize how to think about uh, war, peace, and climate change. Because in their day-to-day lives, although those lives will be impacted by violence and although those those lives will be impacted by environmental issues, um, there are probably other ways to get at thinking about violence, about thinking about the environment that are richer and more meaningful for them where they're going to find themselves. So I've never actually taught a course on this. Um that said, there are a couple pieces that do show up. Part of um, the, um, the first book is to to map out a way th- of thinking theologically about the movement of traditions through time, and uh, to account for the complex way modes of um, continuity and discontinuity within traditions. And so I do bring that piece into a class I teach on the histories of Christian ethics. The, that it's plural um, there on purpose. Um, I discovered uh, that uh, uh, another class being taught at the seminary, which is one of our integrative courses, uh, so it's not being taught within a particular area, um, they do uh, use a chapter out of the first book. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a way of introducing the students to me but they, put, they chose the chapter on the basis of um, here's something you may want to be thinking about going on, a way of thinking about how to do theology um, that addresses social issues. Mm-hmm. All that said, um, I have the other piece that's been a, a, a hesitancy for me is that when I started teaching at Columbia some 20 plus years ago, I couldn't find enough students who wanted to take a course on environmental ethics for me to offer the course. I didn't want to... Um, Kind of propose a course that got three people who were passionate about it and everybody else ignored when i needed to be able to teach courses that drew you know 15 20 students at a time um, just kind of in a cost benefit uh, Mm -hmm. framing that's changed so um, i have started to teach some courses on environmental ethics to our our doctoral and master's students and um, in the doctoral classes that I've taught at least, I've been able to kind of spend a day thinking about the relationship between climate and conflict, partly because it's strategically advantageous for them for me to be doing that. And what I mean by that is they're in congregations where they may still have um, climate deniers or people who think that the only people who care about climate change are crunchy leftists, and that's not them. But when you point out to these folks that um, the U.S. military is deeply concerned about climate change. It changes that conversation. <laughs> so um, my way of kind of getting my stuff in front of them is to say, how can this help you in your setting? And that's one place it helps them.
0: That's fascinating, Mark. And uh, on that note, I want to go ahead and mention the book again, Modernity, the Environment and the Christian Just War Tradition, the second in a trilogy that you're putting out. Uh and I uh, just want to thank you for being on the podcast and for being involved with CTI.
1: Oh, well, it's a delight to be involved in CTI and a special delight to um, hang out with you. And who doesn't like to talk about their own books? Honestly, like we spent so much time and energy. This is a real pleasure just to be able to talk about my stuff.
0: Well, you've been working on these uh, this trilogy for over a decade now.
1: Ever, so, forever is what it feels yeah. like. Uh, and And the thing that's scary is like, these are three books for the Academy. And my wife is like, when you're done, can you please write, the book that's for everybody about this stuff like well i understand the need for that but i don't know if i'm gonna have the energy for it by the time i am finished with the third book that's the benefit
0: of a podcast so there you go
1: Yeah. yeah yeah
0: all right thanks mark
1: thank you josh